I invite you to take your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would come to us in power, that your spirit would cut away all the things that would hinder us beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That you would show us truth, though be painful, surgically hurtful, yet we thank you that your word has come to not only cut, but to heal. And may we rejoice that you're a God who so loved us that you would awaken us to the realities of life, life under the sun. Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for giving us a Bible. And may uh, we come to your word with a sole desire to see Christ and to be changed because we've seen him. Help us, Father. We won't stay attentive without your help. And for someone here that doesn't know Christ, if they're, if they're religious or they're looking in life and finding nothing, that may they see Christ today. Not that he, would, that he would give them things in life, but he would give them life. And Lord, may you be honored to feel yourself to us. May we not be the same as we sit under your word and we behold Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It has been said of Ecclesiastes, quote, Ecclesiastes is a remarkably relevant book. It gives the appearance of being written with our time in mind, for there is a skepticism that sounds modern, In quotes. We live in a world today of much disillusionment. We live in a world today, you know, of disillusioned, discontented, never satisfied people. And that world is not out there. That world is within us as we fight this like everyone else. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the the author, the author, he speaks with as one who knows. He knows. He speaks as one who has tasted all the world has to offer. The best of pleasures, the height of power, the ultimate in privilege and prestige, worldwide popularity... And yet the preacher would say, it doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. Last week we did a flyby of the book. We just did a, uh, a 30,000 uh, feet flyby and got a, got a kind of a, a direction where we wanted to go with this book. And I shared a couple reasons why studying Ecclesiastes is so important. And one of them was this. It really does give us a dose of reality. It really does wake us up to the reality of what life really is under the sun. 
the ever-elusiveness within us of trying to find contentment on things that will never content us. And so by studying Ecclesiastes, for me personally and for you, we're going to see that there is nothing that you think in this earth is going to give you satisfaction in totality. It's just not going to happen. The second reason why um, we saw reason, or second reason to read, read this book or say this book, is that it does bring us face to face with eternity. You mean, life goes by fast. It really goes by fast. And if you sit down and think about it, uh, you would agree with me. It's just, 2016, wasn't it not long ago we were all worried about uh, Y2K and the world coming to the end? Study Ecclesiastes to come face to face with eternity. And then I also note that there were some values of studying Ecclesiastes. You know, I gave you three. Theologically, it does expose us to God. It brings us face to face with a God who is sovereign, a God who is all-powerful, and a God who is love. We also noted that uh, a, good, a good value of studying Ecclesiastes is evangelistically, is that you can encounter people out there, if they're really sensitive, you know, and they're, and they're open, you're going to find out, and you ask them the question, are you satisfied in life? They're going to tell you no. And, so let me, and then you can say, let me tell you the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. So there's a reason why uh, to study, I should say a value, because of evangelistically. And finally, practically, practically. We saw in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one. The importance of fellowship with one another, committing to one another. We also saw that Solomon provides wise instruction on how to come to church in chapter 5. Better to come to listen than to talk. So this book is brutally honest. It's brutally honest. It confronts all the troubles in life, the paradoxes in life. It's not afraid to tell us, to tell us in very bold language that there is no human relationship, there is no material good, there is no vocational or educational achievements that's going to last or give you satisfaction. It's like, as I mentioned last week, it's like a, a, a cold splash of water in your face in the mornings when you get a hold of what Solomon is trying to tell us. There is nothing under the sun. It won't be a different church. It won't be a different translation of the Bible. It won't be any new job. It won't be any new relationship. There will be nothing that satisfies the human soul. There is one thing, and it's not a thing. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He alone, and we'll see that. So the book, the book is brutally honest. It tells us that there is nothing under the sun that's going to make us happy. There's a story told of a man. It was, the year was 1808 in Manchester, Manchester, England. This man went to see a doctor. He was sick. He was frightened by the terror of the world. He was depressed, unable to find happiness anywhere, and he saw no reason to live. He confessed that he was suicidal, the doctor decided that there was nothing physically wrong with the man, so he advised him to lighten up, enjoy life, get out, go and see the famous clown Grimaldi in the circus. He says, go and see the clown. He's the funniest man on the earth. He'll make you happy. The man hung his head down and looked at the doctor and said, I am Grimaldi. There is no one, there is no one or no thing that will satisfy the human soul. And even thus, those who know Jesus Christ, even us who claim to know Him, is that the experience of Solomon is, is dangerously tempting to us. Is we too, even as those who know Christ, we can come and try to seek the vanity of vanities to, 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 to satisfy the soul when only Jesus Christ will do that. 
And what we need to see through Ecclesiastes is a guide. We need someone. We need someone to lead us. To lead us. And that someone is Solomon. Solomon. Solomon is a trustworthy guide. And I pray as we go through this that as the goals we've established that God would grant that to us. And I pray for you as I pray for me that I've got to see that there is no pursuit of anything or anyone in this world apart from Jesus Christ that's going to satisfy me. Nothing. And the second goal, the second goal is I need to see life for what it is. I need to ensure that I understand that I'm rushing to a day of judgment. And that's not to make us afraid. It's to make us serious about life. And to understand, as Solomon would close his book, telling us that there is a day of judgment coming. But Solomon, we want to look at Solomon today. We want to, we want to be introduced to our guide and see some application as he's the one that's going to take us through this book. But I do, as much as I've kind of built a, uh, somewhat of a morbid picture of this, uh, this book, Ecclesiastes is not all gloom and doom. It's not all gloom and doom. It is actually a book of hope. It's a book of hope, and it provides direction to us after it does the painful surgical work in us. It ends in hope. It shows us where contentment is found. It shows us meaning under the sun, living under the sun with meaning is possible if we do so in the context of a life centered under or in the sun, S-O-N. So look at verse 1. We want to use this morning, we want to introduce uh, our guide or the messenger. We want to introduce the, pe- the preacher the preacher, and then his message. And this will say, sh- uh, shape the f- ground a- or foundation of where we want to go because Solomon is a trusted agent. Solomon is a trusted guide. Why? Because he's been there. He's been there. Number one, uh, verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now there are, there are arguments uh, that have arose uh, uh, recently in the past 25, maybe 30 years, you know, the authorship of Ecclesiastes. There are some out there that are saying that Solomon didn't write that. I think we can dismiss that. The evidence is overwhelming uh, that he, he did pen this book. The internal evidence supporting Solomon's authorship is strong. If you see just in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, it is Solomon. And as you consider who this man is, as you consider Solomon in his, uh, in his authorship of this book, uh, he calls himself the preacher. The preacher. So the first thing we want to establish about this man is authority. Because if he doesn't have any authority, if he doesn't have any experience, if he isn't a man that we can trust, why read his book? Why go into the look at this life of Solomon and look at him and say, how can I trust you? You don't know what you're talking about. Solomon establishes out of the gate, he establishes his authority. He says, I am the preacher. I am the preacher. The word actually means a public teacher. Solomon is addressing an assembly. He is addressing a congregation. And the Hebrew word actually points to someone who speaks in a public forum. The author is a preacher. And we must understand that he does preach with authority. He does preach with authority because really Ecclesiastes could be retitled the experience of Solomon. And we could read Ecclesiastes, and I hope you are doing that, read it, understanding this is really his memoirs. Solomon is coming to us with authority because he can say, I know what I'm talking about because I have lived what I've preached. And let's take a look at this man. 
Let's take a look at this man. There's some warnings within this man. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. The authority of Solomon, he's the preacher. And he comes with a message of relevance because he comes with a message that he's lived. Verse 1 of uh, 1 Kings 3. Here's Solomon before Ecclesiastes. And I want you to note his relationship with the Lord. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing in high places. However, because no house had ever been yet built for the name of the Lord. Note here, Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to set on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days." If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. What a wonderful picture of a man walking with his God. Of a man who's childlike, even in a great position of authority. Of a man who's humble before his God. Of a man who's not focused on himself or even self-attainment. He's focused on help to govern God's people. And you see such a harmony and such a wonderful relationship between God and Solomon. I look at this and say, oh, to have such a closeness with God. To be able to walk hand in hand with Him. And not only when you don't ask for something, He says, I love you so much, out of the abundance of my grace, I'll give you more than you ask. And so Solomon pictures it as a wonderful picture in 1 Kings 3 of walking in harmony when you're God-centered. And when you're focused on others, and you seek not treasures for yourself, but for God's advancement and God's kingdom. And notice what it says in verse 3. Oh, to have that said of us every day, not among us, but from the, the council of heaven itself. Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. And the reason why that could be said is because he did walk in the ways of the Lord. He did walk in obedience to God's commands. Now go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Oh, Solomon, what happened? Solomon, what happened? You love the Lord. What happened? And he looks at us and says, I'll tell you what happened. It's in my memoirs. It's in Ecclesiastes. 
Verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. The danger of an unequally yoked relationship. Young people, do not yoke yourself. In intimacy, if you're a Christian with an unsaved person, do not do it. Solomon says, don't do it. He goes on. For when Solomon was old, look, for his wise, I'm sorry, pick it up here. And, uh, um, Solomon clung to those in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon, what happened? What happened? And beloved, it will, it will be slow, but it will be sure. If we start seeking to find satisfaction in the world, is it will be slow, but it will be assured. And you'll wake up someday with a barren soul thinking, what happened? So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for the Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Amorites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon, 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 what happened to you? In 1 Kings 3, you love God. You obey God, the one true God. Now, in chapter 11, you're all over the place, appeasing you know, pagans. Why are you doing this, Solomon? Look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Gone is the fellowship of 1 Kings 3. The world has replaced the word in Solomon's life. And that will, what will always be the case is disaster. If you attempt to accommodate the world, it will never produce anything good. Solomon, Solomon, Solomon. You started out, you took the instruction from your father, you walked in a childlike way with the Lord, you enjoyed him, he bestowed upon you wisdom, he bestowed upon you riches, and then all of a sudden you allowed the flesh, you allowed the enticement of the world, you allowed your fallen emotions attached you to foreign women, and as a result, you became a living example of warning, of warning. And know what the Lord says to, about him in verse 9. It says, And the Lord was angry at Solomon. He's not a little bit irritated. He is angry at his child. When God's people choose the world and attempt to find what only he can provide, we will receive the same treatment. If you're a child of God today, you will receive the discipline from a father. It's not a punitive discipline. God is not coming to you as an angry father who's seeking to punish to hurt you, but he will come as an angry father because he loves you and he will restore you and you will go through gut-wrenching pain if you're messing with the world. And if you're unequally yoking yourself, you are going to go through pain if you're a child of God. This is an application of warning for us. 
And what it really does is it establishes Solomon as an authority. He is an authority. He was one who, who, was, who was bestowed by so much. And now he comes to us. He comes to us as a man of authority. Authority, why? Because of through much failure and much regrets, he can speak into every one of our lives as an authority by way of experience. One of the great assets of, of, of preachers as they grow in their ministry of preaching and of ministry is that they grow, they should grow with a passion to live what they preach. If your preacher doesn't attempt to live what he preach, get a new preacher. Because you have a hypocrite. You cannot, Solomon comes to us not as a hypocrite. He comes to us as a, as a man of authority. As a man of unrivaled authority. There's no way you can look at Solomon and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't care that if I'm going to be unequally yoked with someone. I don't care what you say. You don't know what you're talking about. If anything, we must look at Solomon as authority, the absolute authority, because he's going to look at you and look at me and says, you think you can find satisfaction under the sun? Let me tell you what I did. Bip, 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 he did it all. And he looked, he's going to look at us and say, it ain't going to do it. Save yourself a lot of crying, a lot of pain, a lot of wasted money, a lot of wasted time. Do not seek it under the sun. And I'm coming to you as a man of authority. But the second thing, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Here's the second thing about Solomon. Not only does, does he come to us as a man with incredible authority and credibility because of his experience. But secondly, look what it says in verse 1. Note his ancestry, the son of David. He is the son of David. He is the son of a man that was known as a man after God's own heart. Privileged ancestry. Privileged ancestry. He would have heard the godly counsel from, his, from the sweet psalmist as he grew up. He would have listened. As we saw in, in 1 Kings 3, he listened to his dad. David was not a perfect father or husband. In fact, he was a horrible father. And he was not a good husband. But yet God in his great mercy and grace, you know, looked at David as a man after, my own, after his own heart. And that Solomon would have seen the instruction or heard the instruction from his father. But he also would have saw the failures in his father. He also would have saw the failures. And this is a very, very sobering thought. David's sin came down as reproduced in his son. David fell because of the lust of a woman. Solomon falls because of the lust of a woman. Be very careful, dads. Be very careful, moms. Generational sins happen. And your kids are going to catch more by what they observe from you. And it's very important you guard your heart. David didn't guard his heart. We saw the same thing in Abraham with Isaac. We see the same thing repeated. There are generational sins. But yet he's, he's a man of rich ancestry. And what makes this story so sad about Solomon is he had such privilege and he tossed it to the wind as he chased the wind. He tossed it all away as he sought things that would never satisfy I think in some ways you can look at Solomon and call him the prodigal son of the Old Testament. I believe he did get restored. 
And eventually when we get to Ecclesiastes 12, and I don't know when that is, someone said five months and I laughed. We don't know. But we do know when we get to the end, he's going to show us. He's going to show us a restored man. He's going to say, here's what really matters. But until then, we've established the authority, the authority of Solomon. The authority is a man who's lived it. Do not underestimate the power of example. We'll talk about that here shortly by way of application. And that's why it's so important in the church that we have spiritual relationships with each other that go beyond just Sunday. You've you got to be involved in each other in lives. You've got to be involved in Christians' lives outside of Sunday. You can't grow in isolation. You've got to have relationships with growing Christians. Why? Because we need the examples. We need the exhortation. We'll look at that. His authority, he's a man who lived it. His ancestry, he tossed it away for the fleeting pleasures of a moment. Number three, look at the third thing in verse one of Ecclesiastes. His affluence. Look at his affluence. He was the king in Jerusalem. Remember when Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 3 for wisdom? He got that. But then we see the bountiful mercy of God and the greatness of God, which we enjoy every day, is that God says, I'll give you what you ask, but I'm going to give you a whole lot more. And is that not the nature of our God? A wonderful, loving God who just pours out blessings upon blessings upon blessings. You know what? If you're not careful, that can be abused. And you can take for granted the wonderful things that God has given us. In many ways, our country, the greatest nation in, in, in the world, that we are far from God. You know, and I believe under judgment of God, and it will be if we don't turn. But the reality of it is here, is we are the most affluent country in the world. And our affluency is both a blessing and a curse. Solomon had it all. Notice what it says about him, the third thing. He's not only he's a preacher... He has a rich ancestry of the son of David. Nobody says he's the king in Jerusalem. And God said to him, I will give you also what you ask not, but I will add to you riches and honor. He had royal influence. He had royal control. He had royal dignity. And he had royal means. There wasn't anything under the sun that he didn't have money to buy. There wasn't anything that he could be withheld of to enjoy. And we're going to see that. He had it all. And if he, did, if he didn't have it all, then he could buy it all. He's the king. And the king had everything. He had everything. And he, he shows us, as he will show us, that having everything, having everything, does not mean that you have everything. In fact, his thirst for contentment that was driven by the flesh, proved to shipwreck his life. It proved to be disastrous. David Wells, he's commenting on one of something called the American Paradox. Notice what Wells says, quote, It is that we have never had so much, and yet we have never had so little. Never had we had more choices, more easily accessible education, more freedoms, more affluence, more sophisticated appliances, better care, better houses, more comfort, better health care. This is one side of the paradox. The other side, though, is that by every measure, depression has never been more prevalent, anxiety higher, or confusion more widespread. 
We are not holding our marriages together well. Our children are more demoralized than ever. Our teens are committing suicide at the highest rate ever. We are incarcerating more and more people. And cohabitation has never been more widespread. Having more is not always good. Solomon painfully learned that his affluence was a curse. It wasn't a blessing. Having the ability to have whatever you want to satisfy the flesh is not the path to self-contentment. You will never be able to buy enough things, have enough stuff to meet the vacuum in your soul that is only reserved for the person of Jesus Christ. You will never be contented in anything that you can buy, that you can obtain, or that you can achieve like Solomon, unless you understand that the only possible way of finding any meaning in life, any contentment, is a life centered on and surrendered to the person of Jesus Christ. That's because you were created for that. That's because I was recreated for that. And Solomon comes to us and says, I'm the authority. Listen to me. And then he comes to us. He comes to us not only in authority. He said, also, listen, I'm warning you. Just because you have privileged ancestry doesn't mean you're going to make it. Just because you have godly parents, young people, doesn't mean you're going to be. And just because you happen to be in a church that's committed to preaching the Bible and committed to prayer, it doesn't mean when you get outside the confines of this that you're going to find that somewhere. I'm not saying there's not churches out there. Your ancestry or your parentage or your lineage does not guarantee that you're going you're to turn out well. Solomon started well. He started well. Yes, he got restored, but he didn't end the best way he could have. Friends, as a Christian, it's not how well you start. It's how well you run the race and you finish. It's not how well, it's not the bells and whistles of excitement of getting converted. That's the start. The measurement is how well you finish. And you must keep in mind Ecclesiastes because it's going to help you as a roadmap so that you'll finish well. Because at the end of Ecclesiastes, it tells us about that great day, that great day of judgment, that great day of judgment. When you and I will stand before the King of Kings and give an account, not for our sin, but for the use of every resource He ever gave us. And our affluency is to be a stewardship, not an ownership. And we'll look at that. So there's the first thing we see in the guide to Ecclesiastes. We find Solomon, the messenger of Ecclesiastes. The one with authority who speaks from painful and real experience. One who had a rich ancestry of godliness and dishonored it. And one who was affluent, able to satisfy the flesh with all things, and yet found it wanting. Let's move into verse 2. And let's take a look at the message preached. The message preached. Solomon is a good preacher. He states his main point early, forcibly, clearly, and often. And the whole message of Ecclesiastes, this whole sermon, is verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity appears 38 times. It serves as bookends. It appears in verse 2 of chapter 1, and it also appears at the end in chapter 12, verse 8. Now, there's various ways that this word is translated. It means temporary, transitory, meaningless, senseless, futile, absurd, empty. And then he would take those words of definition, and he would give us pictures. 
He said, vanity of vanities. It's like a striving after the wind. It's like a bubble. It's like smoke that curls up into the air. Or a mist. Or, or, or breath, like on a cold morning. So Solomon is establishing what his message is for us. And he makes two points in this verse that I want to make this morning. Two points about the vanity or futility of life under the sun when it's not lived walking with the S-O-N, sun. The first one is the futility of life under the sun. The futility. Again, he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. He repeats the phrase, vanity of vanities. Why would he do that? Well, one, repetition. But the second thing is because he separates and says, this is the height of folly. It's like saying, the song of songs. This is the best song of all songs. Or he would say that the God of all gods, he is the only highest God of all gods. Or he would say the heaven of heavens, like the heaven being the chiefest. What he's saying by this, very forcibly and repeatedly, that without a God-centered view of life, it is the vanity of all vanities. No matter what you do, no matter what you become, it is the chief folly and vanity of vanities in life if you don't live it with a God viewpoint and God-centered. It's like Solomon is looking at us, and he's looking at me, and he's preaching, and he says, Jim, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity, vanity of vanities. He's like saying, Jim, do you get it? If you don't, I'm going to tell you again, and I'm going to tell you again, and I'm going to tell you again 38 times. He's like saying, you've got to get this. Listen to me. Watch me. Let me tell you, vanity of vanities. He's saying this repetition, a wonderful tool in preaching of repetition, so that he would show us and enforce upon us the seriousness of this and that we would truly get it. I don't want any of us to leave Ecclesiastes and dismissing the counsel of Solomon. In fact, this, this book can change our lives. This book can literally change your life. Because if you're on the human hamster wheel, going round and round and round, trying to find pleasure in relationships, pleasure in things, pleasure in achievements, if, if you're on that, Solomon's message is to say, get off. Solomon's message is to us is to get off. And none of us want to get to the end of life and look back and be able to write in Ecclesiastes. None of us. He's telling us there's a futility of living under the sun. Basically, if you want to take it, uh, you know, I feel this way often. Uh, Ecclesiastes is like every day is a Monday. Every day is a Monday when lived under the sun without the sun. And Solomon's saying it's futile. It's futile. Life under the curse is futile. But note the second thing in verse 2. The all-inclusive fertility. The all-inclusive. He doesn't say that vanity of vanity, some things are vain. Vain. He says, some things are okay. Some, no, he doesn't do that. Solomon says, everything is vain. All is vanity, he says in verse 2. All is vanity. And beloved, I know this happens in Christians' lives. There are Christians that are discontented in their Christian life. And they think that they just have a new experience, a new this, a new this. Well, then what we need to do is read Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where he says in verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. It isn't a change of your environment. It isn't a change of your circumstances. And it isn't whether we sing this song or that song. That doesn't content. What contents is the reality of Jesus Christ. And Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It's not only partially, it's not partially vain. All things are vain. 
He says, all is vanity. The vain life is vast in its scope. Nothing escapes this emptiness that he tells us. Now, I confess, this provides real punch. And I find it extremely uncomfortable. When Solomon looks at me and says, it's all vain. What do you mean my job's vain? It's all vain, Jim. It's all vain. Throughout the book, he's going to prove his point. Now, here's a short list of what Solomon states is all vanity. Or all meaningless, or all futile, never satisfying. Now, I want to qualify this. It is that way when it's lived horizontally. Your work matters, and we're going to see that. And God gives us gifts to enjoy. But if life isn't lived vertically, first seated in the heavenlies, as we meditate on Colossians 1 through 3, if it's not there first, then it will all be vanity. Then our life will have no meaning. If it's lived completely horizontal, just looking for something new, a new, new, a new this, a new that. Solomon would say, this is the list. Now notice what he says, and I find it very uncomfortable. He says, Jim, your efforts, the fruit of your labor, pleasure, life, youth, success, wealth, desire, popularity, injustice, relationship, vanity. Now there's a part of me that wants to sound with Solomon and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Life isn't that way, Solomon. I do have things to enjoy. I do enjoy relationships. My work is meaningful. You're wrong, Solomon. I almost want to look at him and say, are you telling me that i got to walk around like Eeyore all the time? Are you telling me i got to walk around like the peanut character pig pen with this dust of discouragement all over me? Is that what you're telling me, Solomon? I do that enough, by the way. Solomon, are you telling me i got to walk around gloom and doom like sack and ass cloth spiritually all the time, looking like I have a diet of lemons? Is that what you're telling me, Solomon? You're saying it's all vain, there's nothing under the sun that's going to satisfy you? By virtue of my rebellion against Solomon, it shows that what he's telling me is true. By him telling me that there's nothing new under the sun and me rebelling against that, it proves that he is right. But I want us to understand this. Is that when he gives the message, he's not asking us to coil up in a, in a ball or in a corner and just wait for Christ to bring us home. He's not saying that. He's telling us that if you live horizontally, and you try to have one foot in heaven and one foot in the earth, and you try to find satisfaction in Christ and satisfaction in the earth, is that you're not going to get there. Beloved, you can't be a Christian, and I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. You can't be a, a, a Christian enjoying the Christian life if you're trying to find satisfaction in, in this life and the next. It will not happen. And Solomon is trying to get us to understand that if you live Christless, as an unsaved person, or you live Christ, lacking Christ-centeredness as a Christian, is that you are going to find everything that you do not lasting. That new phone that you just got, you're going to want it upgraded in six months. That new computer that was awesome and fast today is too slow up two months from now. That car, it just got its first scratch. That exciting relationship you're in, guess what? You're going to find out that you're living with a sinner. And that church that you thought, man, what great preaching, what great music, what great this, stick around for six months and you're going to see the warts. Beloved, he is telling us the truth. Is that there is nothing under the sun that's going to satisfy your soul. He said it's all vanity, it's all vain. But he does come to us with authority, but it's pastoral authority. He's not trying to get us, like I said, to wake up every day and just downs a bunch of lemons and walk around like a sour-faced Christian. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to give us a pastoral warnings. What to avoid so that we can find contentment. So that we can enjoy life as it was intended to be. So let's take a look at some application. 
application. So what can we take out of this description of Solomon, and what can we take out of the message of vanity of vanities? I want you to consider three things. Three things. Taken from who he was and what he experienced. Number one, realize that there is a preacher in every one of you. There is a preacher in every one of you. You say, well, I don't have the, the prophetic gift of preaching. No, that's true. Very few people do. Very few people. There's not very many people called, very few, very, not a lot of men called to preach. But your life and my life, we are preachers. We are preachers. We preach a sermon every day in our lives. You preach a sermon to your kids. You preach a sermon to your coworkers. You preach a sermon to your church. Every day, our lives are reflective of who we are. And it is a, it is a sermon every day. And it, like Solomon, we preach by example. I'm not talking a sermon when you go out and you start proclaiming the gospel. Certainly do that. I'm talking about the sermon of your life that's observed every single day by those near to you and those around you. And don't think people are not looking at you. If you profess to be a Christian, they want to see the real deal. They want to see why. Because they've tasted the world. Uh, the world is, is Ecclesiastes. The world is vanity, vanity. And people want to see something that's real. And so when you say you're a Christian, then you have just started preaching your sermon and that's your congregation. And your example will determine the quality of that sermon. Jesus said, after he washed the disciples' feet, he said, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Paul told Timothy, Paul told the Philippians, follow me according to the example. You say, well, I'm not. Yes, you, if you profess to be a Christian, you are an example. You are a preacher, whether you acknowledge it or not. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching. You're, every day you wake up and everything that you do and everything that you say and how you use your time and what you give your resources to, it's a sermon. And Solomon the preacher preaches us out of his life. And you and I, by application, we preach out of our lives. Mahat Gandhi was attending the university in London. Gandhi had almost been convinced to become a Christian. He saw that this might be the one true supernatural religion. After graduation, he continued to seek evidence that would persuade him to become a committed Christian. Gandhi moved into and lived with a family who was a member of an evangelical church. He believed this would be the greatest source of evidence for the Christian faith by living with Christians and seeing their lives. Gandhi lived with his family for seven months. But after seeing their casual, light attitude towards God, hearing them complain and being non-committal to their sacrifices for Christ, and becoming acutely aware of their religious apathy, he became disillusioned. And Gandhi said, sadly, No, Christianity is not the one true supernatural religion I'd hope to find out. It's a good religion, but it's just like all the other ones in the world. So what type of sermons are we preaching? What type of sermon did you preach to your kids and to your, your family and to your brothers and sisters and your co-workers this past week? Solomon the preacher. He comes with a message of authority. You and me as the preacher. We come with a message of authority. Not because of our words, but because of our life. And don't ever think that you can separate the living of the gospel from the proclaiming of the gospel. We are called to proclaim, but I'm afraid sometimes we get so bent out on, on exhorting us to preach the gospel, we forget when Paul says, walk worthy of the gospel as shining lights 
I don't want to hear someone tell me about Jesus and tell me about how wonderful He is and tell me about how grace is and all that if it's not working for them. And so must separate this proclamation with affirmation. Solomon preaches with affirmation and he preaches with conviction and proclamation because of the example that he left and it wasn't a good one. Number two. Here's the second application from Ecclesiastes and the author, Solomon, is remember your ancestry. Solomon forgot it. Solomon forgot it. He'd forgotten his roots, and thus he allowed the pleasures of the flesh to forget his identity, and he chased the wind, and he gave it up. One of the most important things you will do if you want to leave a good legacy and a good example is not think long term. It's every single day when you wake up, remind yourself of what Paul told the Corinthians. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I have no right to choose. I have no right to dictate. Friends, when you live your life, don't live your life like this, holding on to the things in your, in your world. Don't, do, don't make God in His sovereign grace start to pry open your hands, because He will if you're His child. You can't live like this and have joy in Jesus. Secondly, you can't live like this. You can't say, well, I'll give you, I'll give you this, but I'm not giving you this. That doesn't get it either. You must live your life, the ancestry that you have by being in Jesus Christ, like this. You can say, take my life and let it be. Consecrate it all to thee. Solomon didn't do that. Solomon went like this. And God pried it out of him. And so the application is, number one, you're a preacher. Make sure that your sermon validates the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ. Number two, remember your ancestry. Remember that you're not your own. When Jesus Christ saved you, he didn't just save you so that you would escape his wrath. He saved you for his possession. And and friends, you will find more joy and satisfaction, not out of living like this with partial surrender, but you will find great contentment and joy in life when you give all surrender. Every single day, tell yourself, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And the third thing, the third application, is we need wisdom towards affluence. We need wisdom towards affluence. Solomon abused his privileges, spent it on things that would not satisfy, and he had regrets. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who, what, have you, what, do you, what do you have that you did not receive? One of the most liberating things you will do in a world of gross materialism and a gross of sensual satisfaction, one of the most liberating things you will do when it comes to what God has given you by way of resources is to understand that you do not own it. You are a steward of it. You must understand that you don't own a thing. And you can't parse things. God owns it all. He's given you a stewardship. And there is no greater contentment than having a steward of your life and your money, your time, your gifts... And investing that in what's really going to matter. Investing all of that in what matters. And what it matters? Eternity. A.W. Tozer said, The possessive clinging to things must be torn from our souls in violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. He's basically saying, you must, you must do battle against the very things that would cause you to cling to the world as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And one of the great Scottish divines, Samuel Rutherford, who we just saw him a couple uh, sessions ago in, in the Behold Your God series, Samuel Rutherford said this, a wonderful quote. 
He says, build your nest in no tree here, for the Lord of the forest has condemned the whole woods to be demolished. That's a good picture. Don't invest under the sun. Invest in the sun, under the sun. That's the way we become stewards of our lives. So by way of uh, introducing us to our guide, we saw Solomon this morning. Solomon is the messenger, the preacher. He comes to us with authority. Listen to him. He knows what he's talking about because he's lived it. Number two, his ancestry, he had a great lineage. He tossed it away for foolishness. His affluence, he abused that too. He gives us warnings on what we ought to do for preparation for living our lives. Understand that you and I are preachers. Every day we preach. Number two, remember who you are. Don't bring blemish on the person of Jesus Christ. We don't need to because of the power of Christ within us. And finally, ask for God wisdom on how to use the rich blessings He's given every one of us. We have much. May He show us the stewardship and invest more of who we are and what we have in the greatest, <clears throat> the greatest endeavor we could, and that is the work of the gospel. May God help us to see even more of these truths as Solomon becomes our guide, showing us the vanity of vanities of life under the sun without the sun. Let's pray.